Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the CMO, global CMO of Facebook. And uh, we are thrilled to have you here, our guest, Alex Schultz. So welcome, Alex. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Great. So, Alex, I want to start with something that really jumped out. Our crack Great Minds research team has been burning the midnight oil. And I want to start off by talking about paper airplanes. Absolutely. Happy to do so. What do you want to know? Well, uh, this has been a big part of your life, I think, for 25 some odd years. I mean, and since I was one year old. Yeah, 25. Absolutely. That is not uh, even older. And that is not something that you see, that the research team has yet to uncork any uh, other guest where paper airplanes jumped out at us. So I thought it was worth asking. Yeah, no, my, my dad um, qualified as an aeronautical engineer when he was, uh, uh, he's German, um, and uh, when he was at college, and I, um, he used to make paper airplanes for me, and there was this awesome Scientific American book that I followed along that is just great with loads of paper airplanes, and I built this website on GeoCities, which you're a Yahoo alum, so you must have some memory of GeoCities, and um uh, I created sections, fun science experiments, Formula One, and paper airplanes. And the paper airplane section started taking off, pun intended, um, because it was ranking in Alta Vista, if you remember that. Of course I do. And it taught me about search engine optimization. So I got a domain name, paperairplanes.co.uk. Back then, the way you ranked was you wrote paper airplanes in white on a white background below the fold like 50 times and you'd rank high up. But then... Google came along and the way to rank on Google was to get into the Yahoo directory. So I got listed in the Yahoo directory and because my first name's Alex, I was listed under Alex's paper airplanes and I came up first in the Yahoo directory. And when Google crawled it, it meant that I ranked number one in Google for paper airplanes. And so I learned all about kind of SEO and all of this stuff from that. And it started my whole career in marketing. And I went to Cambridge and I studied physics. And even at Cambridge studying physics, having a paper airplane website was not cool. Um, so then I created a cocktail making one, which was programmable with a database and searchable. And that really kind of got me into, into tech and marketing and the intersection of the two. Absolutely fantastic. And one of the things that um, strikes me about you is you've got that sort of hybrid set of skills of someone who has a great technical background, but also has a real sort of creative and almost entrepreneurial spirit about what you do in your, your career path and your way forward. When you were younger, did you work? And or where did that sort of early interests, you know, take shape from? Was there a particular influence, parents, friends, mentors? Yeah, I mean, my, I, I have a very hardworking pair of parents. Um, my dad was born in uh, Germany in World War II in East Germany, and his family had to flee as refugees uh, from, from the Russians when, when they arrived. And my mum, my mum's side of the family, I was the first person to go to university. It was people, my, my granddad um, was, a, was lit, lit gas lamps um, and was an air raid warden in World War II, and sort of mum worked her way up in business. But um, you know, they, they were a hardworking background. And so like, they kind of expected that of me. I did summer jobs. I did 
my first proper job, I did like gardening and stuff, but like my first proper job was um, shredding paper and being a facilities guy in a, in an investment bank. Um, when there was someone else from my school who was actually interning in it as an investment banker. And I'm like, mm, this is interesting. But that's, that's kind of the upbringing I had. It's like, you, you work hard, you make money, you pay for things. You know, I got into a, a fancy school that my parents paid for. And then my dad lost his job in the 80s recession and they worked really hard to keep me there. And I worked really hard to get a scholarship so that I could save them from having to pay for it. And like, we just, we just worked as a team the whole way through. Um, and I think it was, it was awesome. And I'm just very lucky to have parents like that. Well, yeah, my parents uh, also sacrificed to put me through a good school. So I know exactly what you mean. And I imagine your athletic endeavors uh, being a teammate, a team. What do you call Well, what do you call a rowing team? Because I've never really crew. rowed. A crew. a crew. A crew. Okay, I think we use that word here too. So talk about that and um, what that taught you. Now you lead a global marketing team and one of the most important companies in the world. Uh, but talk about that early experience back on the river. Yeah, I mean, rowing, I think rowing is an incredible sport. Um, I now do a lot uh, to support my old rowing clubs. Um, I'm actually going to Cambridge to do a boat blessing. And we're naming the boat after a Morden alumni called Anthony Gray, who was one of the most important people for the legalization of same-sex relationships in the UK. Um, and I'm like super stoked we're doing that because uh, the, the world's changed, right? When I went to college, the idea of you'd be riding in a, rowing in a boat named after someone who did that was like an anathema. And now it's like, they're doing it for me, which is great. Um, but yeah, the, the college, I, I took up rowing when I went to Cambridge. I really cared about, um, I really wanted to do it. I really loved it. I had a great time. The people in the team were awesome. Um, and it's just really hard. Um, you have to get up at 5am when you're a student. So you're, you can't really be out and partying the night before. So there's like a discipline there. Like, if you don't turn up and it's an eight person boat, seven other people and the coxswain are really annoyed at you. So there's like a real kind of, you have to show up. There's a thing about being in time with everyone else. There's the rhythm, the stream when the bubbles are flowing under the boat and you're perfectly moving in unison in this like very tippy craft with your blades just gliding over the water and then they just enter at the same time, pick it up, almost lift it out of the water and move it forward. It's just, it's so fun. And it's so hard. Um, you know, I, I became, so I, I traveled for Cambridge lightweights. I got into the lightweight squad. Um, I had to lose a lot of weight. I got down to 150 pounds, uh, um, 154 pounds. Um, and I was a rugby player before that. And so, you know, and still pulling like a 632K time. And it was really unhealthy, but it was also like, incredibly like it just developed me in a great deal in terms of like being able to like do something that hard and then being captain of the boat club at college and all of this is like it's college it's intramural so it's not I'm not claiming I was the best player on earth right but being captain of the college boat club just organizing 100 150 people to turn up at the same time on the river working with donors trailing boats to different locations working with other captains working with the people who ran the river all of that kind of stuff it was just it was really great training for running any team down the line so i i don't know i i blathered there but 
I mean, no, it, not not at all. And I think you can really see the business resonance of all those experiences. Yeah, crew, crews are great. I've not met many rowers. There's this amazing lady um, who was president of CUW, Daphne Martyshenko, I'm lucky to know. And like, you know, she ran the club. She was in the boat that sank competing as the first women's boat to compete for the blue boat, uh, to compete on the tideway as a race, which was a huge deal in the UK. And like, you know, there's her, there's other people, there's this guy, anyway, there's a lot of these people and, and they just like, they're successful everywhere. And I just think there's a, there's a thing, it may be a filter of like, you get into rowing and you do it and you stay in it because it's really hard. And that means that you're someone who can deal with that. Or maybe it's the thing that trains you to be able to handle really hard stuff. Um, I'm not sure which it is, but but I, all the people I knew through rowing have been able to be very successful in their subsequent careers. Um, and there's something there. And that you're still in touch with some of them now, that says something also. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. I, uh, I have. I, I just spent time with a bunch of them in, for my birthday just the other week, actually. Fabulous. Fabulous. So you graduate and you wind yourself to eBay. Mm-hmm. And how did you get there? Did they recruit you? Did you go after a job? Yeah, so, so eBay, when I was doing this paper airplane website and then this cocktail website, I started to learn about paid search marketing as well. So I started to buy ads on, on Google and then um, send the click traffic to eBay using their affiliate program and getting a referral fee. And so I learned very much at the dawn of AdWords, I learned how to do paid search marketing. Um, and that was back when you could buy the keyword eBay and they didn't ban that in their affiliate program. There's a lot of complexity there. Now I was trying to decide, do I stay at Cambridge to do a PhD just to do rowing? Because I was going to trial for Cambridge University Boat Club, the, 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 the really big deal boat club. But it was the year I was coming out as gay and I, I was, there was too much going on. And I was very stressed. And so I, I didn't do it. And I actually re regret that to this day. It's like my one big regret. Um, um, but I'm glad it came out. I mean, that was awesome. But, 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 you know, I bailed on trialing that year. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll stay at Cambridge to do a PhD just to row. Uh, and I ended up deciding that was a very stupid idea. Um, so because I'd been doing this paid search, buying traffic, going to eBay, and eBay was doing a, what's called a milk round. They were coming to do recruiting at the university. I turned up to the milk round and I told them what I was doing and I showed them what I was doing. And they were, there was this lady, Anne de Vancey, who runs a chateau in France where you can now stay. She's a lovely lady. Um, she was the recruiter and she just, um, you know, she was really impressed and, and offered me a job. Simon Darling, the head of marketing in the UK, offered me a job and he was awesome. And they held a role open for me for a year, which was incredible. Um, based on the fact that I already did paid search marketing and affiliate marketing for eBay as an affiliate myself while at college. So that was how I ended up at eBay. And you quickly move from affiliate marketing into a role involving uh, their global business, international business. That happened, you're a young guy then. You're what, 22, 23 years mm -hmm. old? And I'm guessing had not traveled a whole bunch? No. I'd never been to the United States before I went there for a job <laughs> and I've lived there ever since. And that was, you know, really halcyon days for eBay. They were a rocket ship at that time. Well, it's fascinating. So first I have to give credit um, to this chap, David Knight, 
um, who's awesome, um, former CMO of Cash for Gold, was at PepsiCo for years and, and ran international marketing for eBay. And he brought me out to the States and he, along with my colleague, Dennis Chodihibur, who's Dutch, um, those two made it possible for me to be sort of stable and be in the United States. And, and I'm very grateful to them. Um, it was a tough time at eBay, 2004. So we were post.com crash. They were the most valuable company on the internet. And then they hit 2004 Q4 earnings. I think it was 2004, it might have been five. And the stock price fell off a cliff because they whiffed massively on earnings. And it was actually the, the turning of the tide very much for eBay, where eBay went from being the leader on the internet to Google becoming the leader and eBay becoming an also ran. The, the period then actually in 2004, it was amazing to work in internet marketing there with Chris Orton, with Matt Ackley, with Mike Osborne, like this, this group of people who were just incredible building out eBay's paid search infrastructure, which in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, really kept eBay afloat in terms of like growth during that period. And eBay went on to do great things after that to keep things going. But that period, paid search became critical and affiliate marketing became critical to eBay's success globally. Um, I mean, it was, it, was, it was an awesome learning to be there working with that group of people at that time. So, so then my timing is, is just slightly off. You joined really right after the Halcyon days. Yes. Yes. I hit it just on the way down. Right, 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 right. That's fantastic. And traveling to the U.S., starting to grow and go global and learn business internationally, that must have been very exciting for you. Oh, it was tremendously exciting. I mean, I'm half German and, and Germany was eBay's most important market outside the United States, along with the UK. So doing international coordination came, came pretty naturally. Um, spoke a little bit of the language. I don't, I'm not fluent in German, but I can survive if I need to. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was an awesome time. I was very, very lucky working for an Australian with a Dutch guy. It was really cool. And then in, uh, fall winter of 07, uh, a little company by the name of Facebook comes calling. Oh, they didn't come calling. Let's hear, I, let's hear, let's hear the Alex to Facebook story. I chased, so I went to the bottom of the page. So if you go to Facebook in your newsfeed, if you scroll to the bottom, there's a careers link. And obviously we have infinite scroll. So I chased the link down the page to click the careers link. And this was at the end of 2006. Okay. So I applied to Facebook and I got a job offer in February, I think 2007. But I couldn't join because at the time I said, okay, so how do we handle visas? And my recruiter looked at me and was like, visas? Because um, I mean, it was two years old at that stage, the company, and they weren't used to that. And so I had to get a green card. And so I applied for a green card immediately. And um, there'd been a shutdown with Bush for a period um, with green cards. And then they tried to push through a number of, like, they opened up again and they tried to push through a bunch really quickly. And from my understanding, and you've got listeners who probably might say I'm an idiot, but they prioritized who they pushed through by how easy the cases were. And if you've got a physics degree, you can generally immigrate anywhere fairly easily. People really like physicists. Um, make things go boom ethically. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I got rushed. I got really fast through the, the green card process. It was crazy. Six months, I got a green card. And then I went back to Facebook and I said, I have a green card now. Now I can join. There's no visa issues. 
And um, and that was that was it. But I I applied. I joined at the lowest possible level. I just believed this thing was going to be a huge, and B was going to revolutionize advertising. That was that was very much my my belief. Well, that was an awfully good instinct. So uh, I remember going out to California. Facebook. We started Advertising Week in two thousand four, and Facebook almost from the very beginning was engaged with us back in the days when. There was no real income from advertising at that point. And I remember going out there it was probably Alex, I'm going to say some somewhere around probably 0506. And the office, as I recall, was up a flight of stairs and above a store. And that was the whole that was the whole thing. And then every year, as I still do today, we'll go out, you know, to have, you know, a cup of coffee or lunch or dinner mm -hmm. with whoever the senior most person we, we deal with the last several years, last decade or so, it's been David Fisher. Yeah, and, I, read, I listened to your, uh, to your podcast with David. Oh, yeah, yeah I love David. And um, it's been the same place for a little while now, but in those early years, almost every year I would go out, the office would be somewhere else larger. Um, and I would always delete the address because I knew I'd only need it once. Now, of course, you have the whole the old Sun Microsystems campus, which is incredible. I can't believe what it's become. Talk about what the company was like when you joined, because it was a very different company from where it is today, almost 15 years later in 2021. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, you're right. It's a tremendously different place. Um, we were, we were, you know, terrified of MySpace at the time. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it was, it was just a very, very different experience. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I reflect on is around kind of diversity and inclusion and the journey we've been on that front. So when I when I joined Facebook, you know, as a little gay boy uh, in my early 20s, I'd, I'd come to the States and I'd, I hadn't been out of eBay. eBay didn't have it. But that stage, eBay's actually made a load of great progress, but eBay didn't have any employee resource groups. And, and you know, my boss's boss, Laurie Norrington, who's a wonderful woman, um, is a is a lesbian and is very open about it. But at the time, she was my boss's boss, and I didn't even know she was um, a lesbian. And so at eBay, I didn't feel comfortable being out. And then I came to Facebook, and I just like turned up, and it was very. And I say this as a white male. It was very white, very straight, very male. Um, and on the straight part, I didn't feel comfortable being out of the company. It was there were fridges full of Red Bull next to drawers full of Rolaids. Um, uh, it was just like, it was, it was a very intense kind of startup place. And I think like I, the reflection for me of the journey, there's, there's a lot of things, obviously it's got, it's got much larger. It's been very successful. We've seen off competitors like MySpace. I'm actually very proud of the fact that we are a clean, safe space on the internet when you compare it to what there was before us and how pioneering we were on that with authentic identity and, um, the many things that we've built, but the thing that I actually reflect on the most is like, I came there and I didn't feel comfortable or safe being openly gay. And today, like we have, you know, 10,000 people in our Pride Act group. Like we have made so much progress on like diversity and representation and inclusion. And obviously there's a long journey ahead of us. Don't get me wrong. And I'm, I think this is a journey none of us will see finished in our lifetime, but you know, I feel comfortable being out now. And that means a lot to me. And I hope that people joining the company feel that way too. Um, so that's, that's a lot. Actually, like when I hit 10 years, you do a story when you hit 10 years. Right. And, you know, most people thought I'd do a story about growth, direct response marketing, the stuff I'd done. And 
I talked about the experience of being gay at Facebook today versus um, versus 10, 15 years ago, 10 years ago then. And it's just night and day and it, it, it feels it feels better now. You know, one of the things that I, I I'm sure David and I touched on it, but, you know, when you look at the success that Facebook's had, I think a very big part of that has been retention and growth of talent, homegrown talent. And your tenure there is, you know, knocking on the door of 15 years. I think I had air air when I started. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And you still look good, Alex. And and I think part of what you're saying is that your comfort with the company from a cultural vantage point, from an, uh, an inclusive vantage point, from embracing who you are and colleagues of yours uh, uh, that's got to be part of that growth and that retention that the company has sort of grown with you. Yeah, I, d- I don't, I mean, yeah, I, d- I don't think I'd still be at the company if I didn't feel comfortable being out. Um, and there's a lot of people I've talked to um, who I work with closely who it, it just means a lot to them. And it isn't just gay people. And obviously, look, I'm a cis white gay man so i'm very privileged um but i think like it's people from a lot of different diverse backgrounds who i have the conversation with who are great allies to the lgbtq community and i try to be an ally to to other communities too where they found their community at facebook and they've been able to settle into it and like be there like when i look at the great leaders who've who've recently gone to other places too i agree retention's huge we've also produced like two CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies in like the last three months who are both women who've grown their careers tremendously at Facebook, right? And one of them, Fiji, started as a product marketer in the org that I now run. And actually we grew together at Facebook and I think she's amazing, you know? And Deb Lou, we worked together at eBay PayPal and then she came to Facebook and she's grown up. She's now running Ancestry.com, which is a multi-billion dollar company. Like, it's just awesome to see people grow their career and yes, feel community and stay but also use the place as a launch pad to do these incredible things that they're doing now. Yeah, no question. I think that's a huge measure of a company is their ability to produce talent that ends up in other places. So I I agree with you. I I was lucky enough to know um, during the Terry Semmel years Mm -hmm. at Yahoo and did a lot of work for them way back when. Uh, and we actually, many, many years ago, we used to do hired gun work. Now advertising week is all we do. I, I felt like we didn't need to compromise our integrity. And I didn't never wanted anybody to say, oh, they got that because they're your client. So right. now we have no clients. But we used to do hired gun work. And probably about a dozen years or so, we actually produced Facebook's global sales meeting. It was at, uh, I think there was some nice hotel in Red Shores. Red Shores, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the company was much smaller then, but yeah, I agree with you, not only retention, but also producing talent that ends up in other places. So let's talk about your journey. Cause you've had a lot of gigs at Facebook. You've been an analyst, you've been a manager, you're in marketing and analytics and data science and engineering. And now you are cast in a very big role as CMO. And I knew your predecessor a little bit, Antonio, who spoke at our last advertising week in Sydney, uh, in APAC. And, uh, and he's had a number of high profile CMO gigs. And there's sort of a fraternity or sorority of those people, the one that they tend to go from one big gig to another. This is your first big gig as a global CMO. 
and your background much more in the sciences as a physicist and in the data and analytics side. Talk about marketing and how that's been part of your journey at Facebook. And you've got an awfully big remit now. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, for what it's worth, I had an awfully big remit before running all of data science and data engineering for Facebook is a big job. Um, you know, the, the thing that I has been surprising is when, when I got the job, uh, or when I applied for the job, um, actually, even before I got it, someone, someone in the recruiting team would say, so why do you want to become a marketer? And in my mind, I've always been a marketer. Like the way that like I got into the industry was search engine optimization and paid search marketing. My first job was affiliate marketing. I moved to the United States and I transferred internally at eBay in Gary Briggs organization or Gary Briggs world um, as a affiliate marketer. And I took on global coordination for paid search marketing and affiliate marketing. I transferred to Facebook in product marketing for our self-service advertising product. And I created, actually, it's funny, you've seen the function growth marketing mentioned around the industry, right? That's come out of nowhere. That was my team. My team was the first one called growth marketing. And we were called growth marketing because initially we called ourselves internet marketing, just like we were called at eBay. Then um, we got uh, some people who were annoyed with us on the sales team who were called internet marketing. So we had to change our name. So we called ourselves performance marketing because that was a name that was going around on the internet. But at that time, the brand marketing team got annoyed with us because brand marketing also performs, which is a reasonable point. So we killed performance marketing. And then we were in the growth team and we did marketing. So we called ourselves growth marketing. And now around the industry, there are all these people using this term. And it's literally, it was the last option I had um, for naming the team. So, you know, I mean, from my perspective, I have the whole way through my time at Facebook, I have owned uh, direct response marketing. Um, it started small. It started about growing the number of small businesses using our pages product and then converting those small businesses to be advertisers. And for all except one year, I have directly owned that work. Um, and gradually we bolted on growing the number of um, consumers uh, who use the product across the world. Um, and so I've had a global direct response portfolio um, of marketing for the last 15 years at Facebook. Um, and Antonio and I were really close partners. Actually, Antonio, I'm very grateful to him. A, he's a great ally. I know everyone says it, but, you know, as a, as a gay man, like, he was an awesome ally to me, um, and I hope I was to him. Um, and we were both sponsors, so he sponsored um, the Latinx um, Facebook resource group, and I, I sponsor now the Pride app, which is so weird, by the way, going from the activist junior IC to being the exec sponsor is just a very weird change in your life. Right. Um, but Antonio suggested that I should interview for the role to both me and Mark because he felt we should finally unify the direct response side of the house and the brand side of the house, and we should integrate the funnel. Um, and that's the vision, actually, of bringing the two organizations together under me, is that we will have an integrated view the whole way through the funnel. Um, and it won't just be a partnership between me and various heads of brand marketing. It will be in full integration. Um, and so that's a little bit of the journey. I mean, I, I jumped around a bit there, but I, I don't want to bore your listeners. So no, no, not, a, not at all. And I think as we're building the Alex Schultz narrative here, you can really see how it all comes together. And, and you were right to call me out. You did have big gigs prior to this one and global gigs. So let's dig a little deeper on what you just said, the bringing together the brand aspects of marketing and the direct response 
parts of marketing. That's a big job to integrate those two. And you've got a lot of internal facing, you've got a a B2B component and a big B2C component. You've got a lot of internal resources that are at your disposal, folks that are part of your org. And then you've got a world of outside resources, agencies, both creative and media. Talk about how you build a plan to get a hold of all that and how much of it was Antonio's plan, how much of it is your plan, um, how much of it is a work in progress. Well, and also how much of it is the legacy of everyone from Randy Zuckerberg through to Gary Briggs preceding me and Antonio. There's there's yeah. a lot of people who did wonderful work to build this team. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like um, it's like anything. I am not the grand brain on the hill. Um, I have a team and I have great people on my team. Um, so with response to the, the agency partnerships, I couldn't do that without Amanda Goodspeed, who leads our Creative X team. Um, Kate Rao hired some amazing people, a couple of amazing people. She hired um, Andrew Sturk and Josh Ginsburg to run our corporate and our public affairs marketing team. We have veterans like Sam Wu, who's led the Facebook app marketing team and been with us for a decade. Um, and new people like Melissa Waters, who've come on board. And, and I think like we just have a range of really talented people that we can lean on around the, the, the company. Um, Becca Van Dyke, who now leads operations for FRL, um, is obviously a storied marketer who's done amazing things in the past. And you've got people like Mark Darcy, who's chief creative officer at Facebook and is a mentor to me on the creative side of the house. So the first thing I'd say is there's a team. Many of those names I think you know well. Some of them you may not who are helping me in the new part of the world that I've taken on. Um, and it's not that I come down with a grand plan from me. We work with the team and we create it. And that's, that's, uh, that's the first thing and manage the relationships. You mentioned B2B, there is a split. So like the, all the business marketing sits under Marnie Levine, our chief business officer, apart from the direct response self-service advertiser stuff, which, which I help with. And I do the consumer marketing. We have some level of decentralization, some of it doesn't sit directly under me, but in the end, that's kind of how we split the responsibilities. Um, and so there's a lot of partnership that goes on there. Um, so there's a ton of like work with the team and have partnership. Fundamentally though, there's a clear North Star that I think Facebook has been putting out and developing for the world, which is we are moving towards the next computing platform. So if you think about big tech companies, what disrupts large technology companies is platform shifts. The shift to the internet, really disrupted Microsoft, right? The shift to PC disrupted IBM. IBM's mainframes themselves disrupted the people who came before them. And the shift to mobile was one which very famously disrupted some of us, right? Like WhatsApp was a messaging application that, you know, we had been the leading messaging application globally on desktop, but we weren't when we went to mobile. So I think like what we're seeing is that there will be another computing platform. And that computing platform, we believe, is going to be centered around augmented and virtual reality. And so the next step of the narrative for our company is to explain that we are moving towards that future. Why do we have huge investments with Facebook um, Reality Labs? Well, it's because we believe that platform is coming. We don't want to be disrupted like all the previous players. And when you look at stuff like what's going on right now with Apple, with app tracking transparency and so on, where I think they have chosen how they wish to define privacy, we feel it's much more about end-to-end encryption and protecting messages. The fact that we don't own the platform, we're not like even players in the platform, 
is really damaging for us compared to say Google, who are a major player with Android, right? And so that next platform shift is really, really important for a tech company. And so the core narrative we're putting out there is that the future is going to be augmented and virtual. We care about it. And what we are seeing is it's social. Like people are sitting in these headsets, talking to their friends, connecting with other people. The first unicorn in this space was Rec Room, which is a social application. Um, and so the, there is like hopefully some consolidation and focus around us helping explain the journey the company is on towards that next part of what social will be, which is interacting with each other in augmented and virtual reality. And I saw the recent announcements um, around Horizon Workrooms. Is that a substantive step in the direction that you think we're going? Absolutely. We should do another one of these one day in workrooms. Um, I would it's love really that. fun. It's actually really fun. We, we should figure out this thing we can do with Advertising Week and have like an interview or something virtual. Um, so I spend hours a week now in my headset, which I know this is a podcast, but I'm waving, I'm waving right, on, the, right, right. on the screen, um, actually sitting and we have spatial audio. So you sit in this headset and you can whisper to the person next to you. You can, you can, it casts through so you can see your keyboard and it projects your screen into virtual reality. So you can be typing on your screen. It detects your hands. So you now don't need to use hand controllers. You can use your hands to mute yourself, unmute yourself, teleport yourself to the whiteboard. You can then use the hand controller as a pen. You can project your work onto a screen that's two stories high so that everyone can see it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very real. And a year ago, we were trying to do this in the best technology at the time, and it was terrible. It was awful. And the progress we've made, we, we did a management team meeting in there, and it was so bad. And this year, it was so good. We did it last week, and it was really good. And the progress in one year makes me so excited because if you see what we've done in a year, like the avatars, my avatar looks like me. It's even wearing the same color t-shirt um, and it's bald um, and has a little bit, but it's nowhere near as good as we're going to get to when we have like maybe cameras that look at your own face and take facial expressions because we can only do hands and body. Like it's, it's, it's substantive, it's real. And it's actually better than sitting on Zoom calls all day. I promise you to feather that in as part of the mix. Well, yeah, there's certainly a lot of headroom uh, above the Zoom call. So let, let's stay where we are for a minute because it's a fascinating area and one where I'm only mildly literate. Uh, many years ago, probably, well, not many, probably about five years or so ago, Chris Cox came and spoke at Advertising Week Asia in Tokyo. I love Chris. He's fantastic. And he uh, put up an image uh, early on in his keynote address which was also a global meeting of the uh, World Federation of Advertisers. So it was like a, a two for one. And he put up a, an image from the social network and said, this is what it looked like in the movie, the early days. And then he put up a picture. This is what it was really like. And the images were pretty close. And he said, we shared an office with a group of engineers that were developing what would become Android. This was early days. And you mentioned the platforms, the Apple platform and how a change that they can make arbitrarily and without regard to whatever changes that may create for others, their domain, their platform, same with Android. What I think I hear you saying is that there will be something that follows that will be in largely AR 
and AI driven. Talk about that because that's a very big, bold prognostication for the future with tremendous implications for the world. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is and it isn't. Um, firstly, I've actually really enjoyed seeing like the progress society has made grappling with each innovation. And I think like um, it's just advancing society nicely at each step as we get to a new platform. And, you know, we can debate that back and forth, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a technology optimist. When I was a kid, the ozone layer was falling apart, right? And now the hole is closing because we as society have responded. And I, I feel very positive about society's kind of leveraging each system as it comes along. Um, but fundamentally, like we just get platform shifts, right? Radio supplanted newspapers, supplanted by TV. Then there's the internet. Like these things happen throughout the course of human progress. And so the question is more when, not if. Now in Silicon Valley, it's as bad to be early as it is to be late. Like if you are too early, it would destroy your company as easily as if you are too late. Um, but Apple's heavily invested in VR. You've heard Satya Nadella talk about it. Um, Sundar Pichai has talked about it. Like the metaverse, the virtual reality future, people believe it's coming. And it's a question of when, not if. And if you remember like the history of mobile, right? Every year was the year of mobile you know, from 2000 through to maybe 2008. And then people were like, well, mobile's not coming. And everyone missed the fact that pretty much 2010 was the turnaround and that was the year of mobile and everything changed. So we're very early. I don't know if we're in, we're in Nokia candy bar phones or if we're in BlackBerry. I doubt we're at the beginning of the iPhone yet. Like, but I think we're very early on virtual and augmented reality. We're a lot further along than where Google Glass and Google Cardboard was, but like we're certainly not, you know, where we're going to be at the end. So I think it's coming. Quest is the first device that has really good product market fit, excellent retention. People keep using it. People engage with it. We're seeing social apps growing tremendously on it. People want to be social in virtual reality with their friends as well as play single player games. Um, so it's not just sitting down playing games. It's people really hanging out with their friends and chatting. The, the question is how fast is it coming? So there will be millions and millions of people in it soon, for sure. When will it be tens? When will it be hundreds? That, that I don't know the answer to yet, and none of us do. And Alex, do you think from a behavioral standpoint, the way that we've all been living the last 18 months or so, do you think that will be an inadvertent accelerant to some of these behaviors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has been an accelerant. I think you put it really well there. It's an accelerant. Um, I follow this chap on Twitter who I, I really respect called Benedict Evans, who shares a lot of stuff about what's really happening with the pandemic and the responses of use of the internet and so on. And I think what you're seeing is that a lot of people, sorry, it's the middle of the night in the UK and there's still cars driving past. That's so I okay. That's okay. We take it um, as it comes. The, um, there are steps up that have happened with the pandemic, but a lot of things are returning to where they were before. So I think there's, it's an accelerant, but I don't think it's a fundamental angle change. So I think things are coming a little bit earlier, but not, not like it's not a paradigm shift earlier. Gotcha. Okay. Really interesting stuff. So one of the most memorable, uh, keynotes or presentations that I've seen, and we've had been lucky enough to have had a lot of colleagues of yours from Facebook on our thought leadership stages all over the world um, for a long time now. The one that really stayed with me was Ime Archibald. And Ime spoke in, also in Sydney. And 
uh, presented a number of partners who Facebook has worked with to try to help make the world a little bit better. And there was one in particular, a Facebook group that resulted in extracting was eight, nine, 10 million plastic bottles out of the ocean. And it was all made possible and enabled uh, by Facebook and by Facebook groups in particular. For the marketing vision that you're creating, clearly we touched on diversity and inclusion as being something that's deeply baked into you, but talk about the heart part of Facebook, which I don't think gets talked about enough. And the opportunity that you have whether it's with small and medium-sized businesses, an area where I know the company's been very active, or on issues like sustainability. And in this particular example, that Facebook group that Ime talked about that was taking plastic bottles out of the ocean, talk about that part of the job. And is that something that you're excited about, that opportunity to further what Facebook does there and grow that as part of the marketing reputation of the company? Yeah, I mean, growing the reputation and the marketing the reputation of the company for good through marketing has to be one of the hardest jobs on earth. Like, I definitely have a very tough job. Um, I think people's experience of the product is um, is actually the way that this will change. And when you think about the four P's of marketing, like it's really important. Product's part of it, and we have to integrate with product. So I think it's how people experience the good themselves when they're using the product and we with marketing can amplify that. But those examples you use, people are feeling. So uh, my personal involvement, there's been so much. So like on a personal level, doing stuff for the LGBTQ community, making sure, and this sounds crazy, but adding same-sex partnerships as an option in our profiles. Back when I joined Facebook, the UK had um, civil unions for gay men and lesbian women, but like, the US didn't, and so it wasn't in our profile. You couldn't even select it. Um, that From that sort of small thing through to allowing people to offer other gender options, like those moments are I actually think like how we let people represent themselves on our platform. I mean, I'm talking everything through the lens of, of being a, a gay, but like in the UK when I grew up, there was section 28. It's like the Russian propaganda law against talking about same-sex relationships at school. And I think that harmed my life. I really think it harmed my life that I, all I saw was what was on TV about the AIDS epidemic. And at school, they wouldn't talk to me about same-sex relationships and that's changed. Um, so for me, I think, I think censorship is a bad thing. And I think free speech is really important because censorship hurts people and blocking like underprivileged groups and giving governments the ability to just block what underprivileged groups have to say matters and can hurt people. Um, and we need that count, that ability to have free speech. So that's at the heart of where it is. You know, I was very lucky to, uh, to work with this lady, Naomi Gleit, through my time at Facebook. She's not the most prominent leader at Facebook, but she's incredibly effective. Um, she, she's my counterpart. She heads product for the company. But every project I do, Naomi is like my closest partner in doing the project. And she um, and I were very lucky in that we got to set up um, the charitable giving product at Facebook together. Uh, and Naomi has, has run on. But that product was successful because of marketing, because of direct response marketing. When we say to you, it's your birthday, would you like to create a fundraiser, which you may have seen, like that is a marketing unit. That is a direct response marketing unit built by my team. The way the notifications are generated, the way it is promoted in newsfeed, this is 
you know, an intersection of product and marketing fully integrated. And when people experience that and they see the billions of dollars we've raised in our marketing, or they personally experience hundreds or thousands of dollars raised for the charity they care about, that moment and that experience makes them feel better about the company. And that's like a win-win there. And then the final example I'll use is, and I think this is for all of us as marketers, marketing is powerful. I was lucky. I got to talk to this chap, Dominic, from the Terence Higgins Trust in the UK. And the Terence Higgins Trust is the largest AIDS charity in the UK. And they believe that by 2030, we can end the community transmission of AIDS in the United Kingdom. And one of the key reasons they believe that is Facebook ads. And they are buying lead gen ads to get people to take HIV tests. Um, and they run it through the lead gen form and they target uh, gay men um, and uh, people from the, the African diaspora in the UK to get people to take tests. And per positive test they get back, they think there's 7,000 undetected cases of HIV AIDS in the UK. Um, they're getting for 10 times less than any other channel the positive results. Then they get that person treatment. They get them to the point where they're undetectable and cannot transmit, which is a really important fight right now for people to understand that those people who have undetectable um, virus in their bloodstream cannot transmit HIV. And um, like they think that we're part of the solution to ending the HIV pandemic. And so when I think about the heart, like why do I do my job? Why well, do my job because I give voice to people who don't have voice in places where being gay is dangerous. Um, I give them the ability to have private encrypted conversations that cannot be broken into in places where being gay is dangerous. I give people the ability to raise money for the charities they care about and charities the ability to raise billions of dollars. And I get the chance to help organizations like the Terence Higgins Trust help people um, by potentially putting us on a path to end the community transmission of HIV. Like, I believe in what we do. I'm proud of what we do. I, I love the good that's enabled through our platform. And I hope that through marketing, we can amplify these voices as we have done through the good ideas deservedly found or through the fun, like the recent Skate Ghana campaign that shows more the fun side of how you can organize an entire skating movement in a country through Facebook groups and WhatsApp and Instagram and so on. Um, so I hope we can amplify those through marketing, um, but experiencing it yourself in the product is the most valuable thing that can happen for you to see the good the product can do. So that example, you could cut across to so many other areas where both in the health arena and the social arena, where Facebook is moving something that really warrants moving forward, forward, whether it's by connecting people, raising money or, or a combination of the two. But you've got this dichotomy where on one hand, you've got this tremendous engine that's out there creating stuff that's incredibly potent and powerful, but you've got bit off an awfully big enchilada, my friend, in terms of the brand. Mm -hmm. Talk about the brand, Facebook, Instagram, I think you've got a little halo over. I think Instagram is a little special jewel in terms of the brand. There are certain brands that I think do have a halo. Instagram is one of them. People sure. love Instagram. Facebook, very complicated as a brand. How do you tackle that, Alex? You got a great team. You mentioned Mark and some others who are brilliant. I know it's not you alone, but when you lay awake at night, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're thinking about all kinds of things, paper airplanes being one of them, <laughs> cocktails being a, a second, but 
tackling the brand challenge on a global basis. How do you do that, Alex? That's a big, big job. Yeah, and luckily I don't have any more hair to fall out, um, so that's good. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think a few things. Firstly, it isn't a global challenge. Um, actually, Facebook's brand is uniquely um, in a poor place in the United States. Um, if you look at a lot of the world, Facebook's in the top third or even top 10% of brands in many of the countries we operate in. And so I think you have to segment the world um, very carefully. Um, even where I'm in the UK right now, it's, it's a middling brand. It's not the top 10%, but it's certainly not the bottom 10% either. Great, um, great, great point. Thank you for making that. So I think, firstly, you need to break down the world. Secondly, I think we need to understand the arguments that we need to move forward on. Um, I do think it's important for people to think about the good that you describe and figure out what is the right balance. The right balance isn't all free speech with no controls, but the right balance is also not censoring everything people have to say um, at the behest of the government. Uh, and I think like there's been good criticism of us around, for example, the Wuhan lab, lab leak theory, um, where we censored it as misinformation and now we don't because people's point of view changed. This stuff is really hard. And so I think the thing that I believe is most important is across all these things, privacy and personalization, free speech and harmful content. We have to get to the point where we are discussing the correct balance because that is what we need. And we also need to get to the place where we're discussing what the appropriate regulation is that we should face. Like we believe we need regulation on privacy in the United States. We believe that we re need regulation on political ads in the United States. And we are advocating for regulation and have even supported bills in those spaces because we shouldn't be making those decisions. So I think there's an interesting combination there of things um, which all bell down to how do we describe what the right balance is and how do we get that message out to people? Uh, and that is my focus in that space while still having them excited about the fact there is a cool future coming with augmented and virtual reality, which is going to be social. Um, and it's something that we have a lot to contribute to as one of the people who will build the parts of the metaverse that come together in the coming decades. Well, what, what an exciting uh, gig you have. And I don't know how you sleep at all. There's a lot to keep you up, you know, thinking creatively and an awful lot that's, that's uh, uh, truly breaking new ground. This was a joy to talk to you. I, I had no idea what to expect here, Alex. We've not met before. Um, no. But uh, I thought this was uh, uh, super entertaining, and, and I can't thank you enough for making the time and, and joining us. And one of the great minds that I think our industry is going to hear an awful lot from the next few years. And uh, absolutely thrilled to have this chance to talk to you. Um, that's really flattering, and it's, it's a great opportunity to be here and, a, and a, an honor to meet you and get to chat on this podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you.